Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to Murder Mile. Today, I'm standing on Kensal Road in Westbourne Grove, W10. Three streets north of the unsolved killing of Emmy Werner. One road east of the drowning of Lena Cunningham. Two streets west of the sad end to Minnie Barry. And a short walk from West London's Lady Killer. Coming soon to Murder Mile. In the shadow of Trellick Tower, on the bank of the Grand Union Canal, sits Meanwhile Gardens. A thin strip of green in a grey man-made jungle. Where drunks get pickled in a sea of strong Polish lagers. A line of baggy pants skaters take turns to fail to do a simple trick. Picnics are ruined as the Scotch eggs get coated in a choking smock as the belching trucks roll by. And gangs in grey mothercare tracksuits strut about like mummy forgot to change their nappies. As part of the 1960s slum clearance, before Trellick Tower was built, a series of canal-side terraces were scheduled to be demolished, making way for meanwhile gardens. By 1969, 140 Kensal Road was just another Victorian three-storey terrace, with smashed windows, no door, and a leaking roof. Being weeks away from its destruction, it was in the back room of this damp, derelict hole that the body of a 53-year-old prostitute known as Scotch Maggie was found. As an outcast of civilized society, this forgotten woman had been used up, spat out, and dumped alongside a mess of abandoned rubbish. Maggie's death was the epitome of tragic. But who had killed her, and why? My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 208, Rags and Bones, Part 1. Nineteen sixty nine was a year of great technological achievements. The world's first network connection led to the invention of the Internet. Supersonic passenger jet Concorde took its first test flight. And Neil Armstrong became the first man to walk on the moon. The present had become the future. And yet with poverty being so endemic, many people lived as they had in the past. 
very few locals knew anything about Scotch Maggie, whether her name, her past, or her troubles. Maggie was a drunk, a stumbling, slurring, swearing wastrel, who drank to forget, sold sex to buy booze, and got sozzled into a sad stupor with no memory of the past. To the world, Maggie was a nobody. A low-class prostitute, stuck in a vicious circle of drink, sleaze and shame. Who, even in the police file into her death, was described as pathetic human driftwood. She deserved better, but in the end, she would be forgotten. Her real name was Margaret Farlow Cameron. Born on the 17th of January 1916 in Perthshire, Scotland. Little is known about her past as what she did say was a lie and what she was running from was unknown. To those few who listened as she rambled incoherently with her breath a foul-smelling mix of cheap cigarettes, fortified wine, and sometimes semen. She claimed to be from a prosperous Scottish family. Although at the time of her death, with her sister hospitalised and incapable, it could never be proven. With no known work record or education, Maggie's life was empty. A hollow cycle of little routines to fulfill her basic needs. But even her closest friends and clients knew nothing of her life. If she had a family, none were ever seen at her council-funded funeral, and her grave had no flowers nor headstone. Maggie was the epitome of a biological contradiction. Skinny yet fleshy with a chubby red face made rosy by a lifetime of the chief's booze and the emaciated body of a woman for whom food was an afterthought. With a tangled mess of reddish-brown hair, contrasted by a ghostly pale skin, the only reminder of her history was a series of old scars and new bruises which told a tragic tale of a woman who was as disposable as the dump she would be found in. Apart from her death, the only real record that Maggie ever existed was her criminal convictions. For some unknown reason, Maggie was running from something or someone. From 1964 to 68, Maggie lived with a trader called John Ford in a decrepit lodging in Harlesden, where her police file states, she appears to have degenerated into an alcoholic of the lowest kind. On the 2nd of June, 1965, the 9th of March, 1966, the 28th of December, 1967, and lastly, just 10 months before her tragic death, on the 6th of May, 1968, she was fined and imprisoned for public acts of drunkenness. No one will ever know the truth as to why Maggie was so sad, or why she drank to hide her past and to erase her memories. By 1968, Maggie was little more than the town drunk and a local pump. A rambling mess who slugged back several bottles a day of King Head wine before stumbling out into Westbourne Park, unwashed and unkempt, to pull any punter who would pay her a pittance as a slew of vile men defiled her semi-conscious or comatose body as she lay passed out on a bed, a sofa, the floor, 
Urgata. For Maggie, this was what her life had been reduced to. She wasn't a human, but a whore. She wasn't a person, but a pisshead. And she wasn't a woman, but merely a hole for a drunken man's mess. In September 1968, Maggie met 69-year-old Robert Hartley, a retired seaman. And by the Christmas, the two had moved in together into a small, single-roomed lodging on the second floor of three Oxford Gardens in Notting Hill, just beside Portobello Road Market. Having interviewed Robert Hartley, being the last man known to have seen her alive, the police would state he would make a reasonable witness, but as with many in this case, he's of low intelligence and prone to drink. As with Maggie, having been defined as a very low class of prostitute, with him as her boyfriend, they cast aside a few basic but fundamental facts which would have made him less of a witness and more of a suspect. That he was cruel, violent, insane, and more importantly, a liar. Born in Salford in Greater Manchester in August 1900, Although Robert Hartley went by several aliases, like Thomas Harris, Harry Brown, and Harry Williams, throughout the investigation, he had deceived the detectives, as Robert Hartley was also an alias, as his real name was Wilfred Ronald Williams. In truth, Robert had never been a seaman, he had never set sail, and the medals he proudly wore, he had purchased for pennies in a pawn shop. His criminal record was extensive. In 1918, 19 and 20, in Salford, Wigan and Bolton, he would serve six weeks, two months and one year for six counts of theft. In 1921, he served three months for unlawfully wearing military medals for the purposes of deception. And although he now had a family, he was unable to change his ways. In 1923, 24 and 25, he served a total of seven months in prison for the neglect of his family and for the cruelty of his children bookending the abuse of his wife and babies, he would serve five months for twice picking up prostitutes in Salford, and a further 15 months for stealing lead piping and lino. By 1939, with the outbreak of the Second World War, Robert had abandoned his children and married Jeannie, his second wife, only to serve five months hard labour in 1940 for three counts of theft. It was an era where good people sacrificed their lives to protect their country. Only he didn't, as he couldn't. On the 21st of January 1941, having been certified of unsound mind, Robert was committed to Knoll Mental Hospital in Winchester with an unspecified psychiatric disorder, later being removed to Prestwick Mental Hospital where he remained as an inmate for four years. Discharged on the 21st of April 1945, the next 24 years consisted of petty theft and drunkenness. Robert Hartley was a cruel, violent drunk. And even though his lies would ultimately be outed, he was never considered a suspect, and the police took his statement as being as near to a fact. In 
but why? Maybe being burdened by a lack of hard evidence, they went with the best facts that they had. Maybe being an abuser, they felt that a woman like Maggie deserved no less of a man. Or with Maggie being pathetic human driftwood, maybe the effort of a thorough investigation wasn't worth their time. The last known movements of the woman known as Scotch Maggie were certified as true and signed for in the shaky hand of a barely literate man on the 9th of April 1969, one month after her body was found. Probed by the police for details to flesh out their unanswered questions, Robert stated, The night before, I slept with her. She always got completely undressed before getting in, and she wore a nightdress. By all accounts, she was no more drunk than usual. They hadn't fought, and she had slept soundly. On the morning of Tuesday, the 11th of March, 1969, the day of her death, According to Robert, I got up first at 7.30 a.m. and made a pot of tea. Although there would be no witnesses to any part of what followed. She got up about 8.30 a.m., he would state, giving herself a brief top and tail in the sink and popping in her dentures, which consisted of several interspersed false teeth on an old and cracked vulcanized plate. I watched her get dressed, later confirming the jewellery she wore, a yellow metal bracelet, a green plastic ring, a pink bangle and a black plastic ring. But oddly, none of the clothes she would later be found dead in. Not a blue half-sleeved jumper or a pair of grey casual trousers but blue jeans, a blue blouse, and a pair of black leather shoes. None of which would ever be found. And although her green and black lady's coat, last seen hanging on the bedroom door, was missing, her underwear would be stripped from her body. A pair of green socks, a suspender belt, and a white pair of knickers. that would be the last time that Wilford Williams, alias Robert Hartley, saw Maggie Cameron alive. Where she went was unknown. Who she saw was a mystery. As being a staggering drunk, too incapable of conversation, and a drifter whom many people only acknowledged when they wanted her removed from their premises. Nobody cared where she went, as long as it was as far away from them as possible. Anyone can vanish if no one is watching them. With a few close friends, an alcoholic called Jack, a totter with a handcart called Polish Joe, and a few sex workers who were only known by aliases, the only people who regularly spoke with her were the sort of unnamed savoury men who used her for sex. Living just off Portobello Road Market, it's likely that she went there first, but no one could recall seeing her. And there, she vanished. On the 13th of March, 1969, half a mile from their home, 
lay a long line of mid-Victorian three-storey terraces. Scheduled for demolition, near a site called Hazelwood Grove. With the backs of these shell bricks, facing the bank of the Paddington Arm of the Grand Union Canal, the fronts face the road. Devoid of people, except for the demolition team, no one had any reason to be here. Resembling the ghosts of an old forgotten street, or a smashed smile in a broken mouth, Kensal Road was an eyesore, with roofs caved in, broken pipes, spewing sewers, smashed windows and doors gone. Inside still lay the detritus of past lives, as outside unscrupulous fly-tippers often dumped a bag, a box, a trunk or a wardrobe. At 8am, Ralph Spreadbury, a plasterer from Dagenham, started his shift near this row of eight derelict houses. Having been employed nearby for the last few months, most of which had been uneventful. At 12.30pm, he had a sandwich for lunch and he went for a walk. Later stating, one of my hobbies is collecting old books. A few days ago, I had noticed that there were some old books in a box on the pavement outside of a house opposite the building site. The house was derelict and the door was wide open. Having been dumped, it was his if he wanted it. I had a look through the box. There were two or three books, but they were soaking wet. As over the last few days, the rain had lashed down, making the canal bank at the back a soggy mess. I looked in the window by the door, and I saw a lot more books scattered around the floor. I went in and had a look, but they were all soaking wet as the water had gone through the roof. He could have explored higher up the house as there were two floors above. But with a few walls missing, too many bricks crumbling, a river of rainwater pouring in, and the wooden staircase as rotten as an old manky mouth. It was unsafe to enter this building, let alone to tread on the bare, broken floorboards. But then again, Ralph liked old books, and these were free. I went to the back room, where there was a sofa. It was old, used, battered and dumped. Around it lay a sea of unwanted objects. Papers, books, clothes, an old tat that no one would be willing to buy. At one end of the sofa was a brown suitcase. Not big, just three feet long and 18 inches wide. The case was not locked. It was very damp and it looked quite old. With his lunch over, and most of the books too water-damaged to read in this hovel strewn with rats, pigeons and flies. He could have quit his hunt, but curiosity got the better of him. I then opened the case on its hinges to see if there were any books inside. Only the contents would burden his brain with nightmares for the rest of his life. Being heavy, he left it flat on the floor 
and lifted the flap. The suitcase looked as if it had been packed with assorted rags. Until he saw, protruding through, like one of the undead had failed to crawl out of a grave. A left hand, all wrinkled and pale, with a black plastic ring on its left ring finger. He later stated, I saw what I thought was a large doll in the case. Only this doll was lifelike, with a plumpish round face, a skinny bony body, and its reddish brown hair bursting out of the sides. This woman, being five foot five in height, had been folded up like an unsightly hanky. Bent double, with both knees forced up to her face, her arms twisted back, and her feet buckled under her bottom. Someone had forced her into an impossibly tight space, with barely an inch to spare on either side. With rigor mortis leaving a dark hue to the left of her trunk, there was no denying that she was dead. And with her face smashed, as if her nose had been repeatedly beaten, as congealed blood had splattered from several hard explosions across her nostrils and her eyes. Foul play had definitely taken place. Ralph would later testify, I lifted the cloth to see if it was a man or a woman, but I felt so sick I had to let go. At 12.55pm, PC Rogers arrived and secured the scene. At 1.30pm, Dr. John Shanahan pronounced her life as extinct. And at 1.15pm, Detective Inspector Kenneth North and Detective Superintendent James Barnett headed up the investigation into an, as yet, unknown woman found dead in a suitcase. Aside from her identity, two questions would plague them. How did she get there, and why did she die? As a crime scene, it didn't make sense, as although these derelict buildings were often used by prostitutes and punters for a brief sexual tryst, she wasn't dressed to go out. With no shoes or socks, she wore a blue half-sleeve jumper and a pair of grey casual trousers. And with all of her underwear removed, she had no knickers, no bra, and although worn in that era, no suspender belt. Although on the surface, her discovery was shocking, it seemed to be an entirely motiveless crime as who would rob a semi-clothed woman when all she seemed to own was jewellery of the cheapest kind? And if this was a personal grudge, where was the passionate violence or the sadistic wounds? Her cause of death was determined to be a brain hemorrhage caused by repeated blows to the head and face. And yet, with no signs of her struggle at the crime scene, as she hadn't been raped, strangled, violated, bludgeoned or abused, the pathologist, Dr. Donald Tear, was unable to precisely determine how or if she had been attacked, as the hemorrhage is consistent with several heavy blows or heavy falls. Around the body, Items had been stuffed, possibly to pad out the suitcase so it didn't look like it contained a body, including a dirty white cloth, an apron made of thick cotton twill, and a unique bedspread knitted together from several multicolored woolen sheets. 
it had been bound with a red, black and yellow wire. And along with the suitcase, none of which had originated from this house. Dead for at least 24 hours, with no fresh bloodstains found. It seemed odd that someone would waste so much time stuffing a body into a suitcase, only to dump it in a derelict house, whose backyard faced an empty towpath on a dark, unlit section of the Grand Union Canal, where bodies often wash up. The detectives would speculate that someone had crammed her into the suitcase in a state of panic, and that, having been attacked elsewhere, she had been transported to this spot from somewhere else. As although the house was soaking wet, her feet were bare and her body was dry. An autopsy held at Westminster Mortuary would confirm that no sexual assault had taken place. The victim hadn't been bound, muffled, gagged, dragged or restrained. And with no skin cells under her fingernails, she hadn't clawed at her attacker in her last moments alive. In fact, she hadn't struggled. With a dental plate missing, her eyelids and forehead bruised, an extensive bruising to the left-hand side of her skull, but her bones entirely intact. Although three ounces of hemorrhage to the right of her brain would be found, the pathologist would state the injuries to her eyes and mouth were consistent with fist blows or falls, at least two. With a little blood in her airway, she had lived for a short while, having been rendered unconscious. Making bruises, which occurred within 12 hours of her death, and although all four of her limbs were freshly bruised, except for one knuckle on her right little finger, there were no scratches and no scrapes. Why anyone would murder Maggie was baffling being a harmless part-time prostitute who drowned her sorrows in cheap wine and who was no bother to anyone being as unloved as she was forgotten. But someone had. Someone had deliberately taken the time to undress her, to fold her body and to stuff her corpse in an old and wanted suitcase hide her amongst rags and risking being seen carry her to where this pathetic human driftwood would be dumped like rubbish in an old abandoned house the concluding part of Rag and Bones continues next week 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. took longer than expected but there there we go there's a man opposite doing some building work on a roof banging away every six seconds oh uh a house alarm went off uh someone was walking past with their annoying ratty dog that wouldn't shut up some ladies decided to have a conversation outside the boat about their piles or something oh and then some prick went past on his boat playing i'm gonna take your hat off there you go uh, it went, went past playing really music too loud. It was so loud that his little sound system was struggling. You could hear it was it was really tinny and horrible. Why listen to music that loud? It's just that's what the sad bastards do. It's like look at me, I've got loud music on. I always listen to music with earphones in because then you get good quality. It doesn't have to be too loud. Oh, it's just oh anyway arseholes uh welcome to extra mile unscripted unedited see i remember this week normally i forget i'm gonna open some windows and pop on uh, my tea because all the windows are shut and it's a bit it's a bit foisty in here it's a bit hot a bit foisty tea on i'm just gonna have a herbal today uh i'm gonna oh there we go again take my pillows out of the curtains i use those to kind of dampen out the sound so it's not um so hopefully you can't hear too much of outside. I had uh, uh, someone who is a, a well-respected uh, producer who was listening to my show recently, uh, and he said it, it. He made reference to it, saying it, it, sound, it all sounds like it's been recorded in a professional studio, which I like. Obviously not the old stuff. He hasn't listened to that. This is the new. This is this stuff. So I was very happy with that, considering it's just a five hundred pound laptop, a hundred pound microphone, and a lot of hard work. You see all these people online you see people who like especially i i'm going to do a, a voice now so i apologize to this normally i'm sorry to say americans and you see them on forums and they go oh my god you gotta check out my studio man i got a studio it's like i spent thirty thousand bucks on my studio oh my god it's amazing my studio oh my god and uh you look at it and there's pictures normally uh they've they've put all the soundproofing around the rooms it's normally a desk with four spaces in it where they're their buddies can sit oh my god my each buddy has to sit in their seat and they've got like a microphone on a kind of a uh a little thingy hanging down and they've got all the monitors and they've got all the mixes oh my god my my podcast is gonna be amazing i spent thirty thousand dollars in my studio oh my god it's amazing and then it looks great but then you listen to their podcast and it's really badly done and all you can all it is is normally four guys shouting at each other about football oh my god oh my god football oh my god so bad you don't if if you're thinking about doing a podcast don't rush out and buy expensive equipment don't rush out and buy all these kits that you need to buy a laptop a little microphone uh, something to uh, muffle the sound from outside and just a lot of hard work that's all you really need idiots who go out and spend thousands of pounds just fucking forget it just oh just give up now if you want to you can go online you could go on ebay and you will find secondhand podcast kits because people will just give up but yeah you don't need much you just need to put hard work in uh hard work and cake oh something dropped uh, unfortunately i have no cake i'm still trying to do my diet i'm still trying to stay off wheat and shit even though i went to wenzel's the little bakery around the corner on, on sunday i did have a donut and an ice bun I might have had another cake as well. And I did I, I did one of their magic bags where you can get lots of stuff for £3.50. And there's a lot of good stuff in there. I, I, in fact, one night, um, I see, I saying I just had a cake, I didn't, I pigged out. Um, I, uh, th- there was two baguettes in there, so that was my dinner for the night. I had two really nice baguettes and I added a bit of cheese as well. 
Oh, all good. Oh my, oh my God, cheese. Oh my God, studio. Oh, 30,000 bucks. Oh my God. Um, what else is going on? Uh, weather's getting nice now, so I'm going on my little walks, which is nice in the evening. It's just nice because it doesn't get dark too early. So I, I'm not too far from the golf golf course that I love walking through because it's public right away, and it's nice to walk through and take your time and let the let the golfers wait. <laughs> it's a, the look on their face is like, oh, good, get out of my way. I've got some important golfing to do assholes uh so yeah it's all that and just oh i'm not gonna let my tea get too hot i think i think i'm just gonna go with that that was there we go it was almost boiled anyway there we go oh my god oh my god my my tea oh my god i, I spent 50 50 bucks on my tea oh my god uh what else is going on? Uh, by the time you're listening to this, I will be uh, the Soho Strangler week. Soho Strangler would have finished the week. Soho Strangler week would be uh, going on. So I hope you're enjoying all those extra little pieces. I just thought there's lots to really talk about. Um, so I just felt it was nice to do them as additional uh, episodes. Not essential. You can listen to them as and when you want to. Uh, so thank you to everyone who gave nice feedback about about the Soho Strangler series. It was a real labour of love to do. Uh, it was a hard one. Ooh, uh, um, only because I, I did think to myself, oh, will people like this? Because I want to do something different. But obviously you're used to following a story where you see you either follow the victim's journey and then you meet the killer or you follow the killer along the journey. But this one's entirely different. This one is... It's unsolved, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to tell everyone it's unsolved because, unfortunately, a lot of people. Some people go, oh, "I don't like unsolved." So uh, I deliberately didn't say it wasn't solved by lead, but it, it could possibly be solved. We don't know. So there we go. So I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, if you did like the extra stuff that goes with it, I might do that as a uh, a regular thing. Uh, for for bigger series. Uh, or but don't forget um if you want to be a patron subscriber you've got you've got a walk with me which is where we do all the there's lots of really interesting stuff in there i think people seem to like it so that's good um a big thank you to uh new patron subscribers uh so thank you Susanna graham diane Liebowitz, and joanne kirkby so thank you Susanna, diane and joanne make sure i've got all those right oh fly buzzing around uh, don't land in my tea you little bastard so uh let's do some quiz questions there are 10 in total don't forget i haven't yet edited the episode yet so i might balls them up oh, i really want to go to the coffee shop and have um my uh decaf latte decaf decaf soya latte maybe i treat myself i won't treat myself to a cake uh let's do it question number one uh the body uh the body of Maggie was disposed in the shadow of which tower? Question number two. 140 Kensal Road was demolished, uh, making way for what? So 140 Kensal Road was ma- was demolished, making way for what? It's all weird, all these places that I know really well, because I've got mates around the corner from there, so I know all of these places really well. I know all the pubs in that area really well. I know this, even next week's episode uh there's an event that happens in one of the houses and i messaged my mate who lives i was like i've just found i've just found uh a a a, a murderer who uh lived in a house and it may be your house i i checked it was like four road four four houses a day away which was a real pain in the ass but he found it quite amusing uh question number three what was maggie's full name question number four what did those who know who knew maggie call her Question number five, what two brands of wine did Maggie drink? Question number six, what was Robert Hartley's real name? Question number seven, uh, in what... Where was Robert born? I was going to say what city or town. I think Salford is a city, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, in what city was Robert born? I don't care whether he is or not. It's a place. In what place was Robert born? There we go. Let's solve that problem. Question number eight. Uh, 
where were the two mental hospitals where Robert was committed? I'm using the word mental hospitals because they used it in the 1960s, but we would have called them psychiatric hospitals only. Uh, this episode occurred in the 1960s, so I'm not using that word. There we go. Which two mental hospitals, i.e. psychiatric hospitals, did was Robert committed to? Question number nine. What bank did Maggie say she was going to that morning? And question number 10. The demolition site was known as what? So it had a name. What was that name? <sighs> right. Let's dive into a, Let's do some uh, quick stuff to do with this. Uh, and then we'll, we'll do the quiz questions. Don't forget part two is next week. So I'm going to be cautious and careful not to ruin things. Luckily, oddly, because I had time this week, I've written... Normally I'd write an episode, then edit it, and then write the next episode. But this time I wrote both episodes back to back. Uh, which, which is interesting. I know never normally do that. So it was useful. I was I was rewriting stuff in part two and then changing it in part one, and uh, yeah, which normally normally I couldn't do. Normally I'd have to edit around it or record re-record. Anyway, that's boring. Um, so some details about Scotch Maggie, as they called her. Um, lots of aliases, as mentioned. It's quite sad going through the police file and seeing that it it was crossed out, but she was it said uh his victim uh 53 year old alcoholic and in, and next to it was written pathetic human driftwood but then again you see a lot of that with this case you see a lot of people being referenced like with uh robert hartley he is described of of low of uh low intelligence um there's even with with next week's episode as well there's the um some, there's some witnesses and they they say with each witness they say she is a colored woman the f phrasing of the day uh what was the phrase it was uh uh i can't remember oh i can't remember what it was i can't remember what it was I, i'll probably remember it when we get to next week's episode but it's just interesting how they've how with each eyewitness testimony that is given even though these witness testimonies and uh, are, are pretty good they've kind of boiled people down to kind of uh can we trust them can we not trust them why can't we trust them in her case they regard her as pathetic human driftwood with um french marie in uh, soho strangler she was uh they made reference to the fact the police made reference to the fact that she was most likely murdered because uh she was fat and ugly there you go nice uh so margaret uh scotch maggie uh she's about five foot five tall eight and a half stone roughly uh this is all based on her autopsy um we pretty much we don't know much about her life she 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 seemed to lie a lot and when you look at lena uh, lena cunningham which oddly lena cunningham her body was found not too far from trellick not there you go i've just given away one of the questions I, I, I told you it would happen not too far away from uh where the body would be found so uh lena's body had actually washed up probably probably about 200 feet west so this is not too far away um so the, this is a, 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 a because there's no real locks beyond that kind of beyond that uh you get to uh this is the patent arm of the uh the canal uh when you get to the the main grand union canal um when you go north there's kind of a lock at i think it's i think it's cowley but this is this is about seven eight miles so a lot of bodies do wash down that kind of stretch of the canal because after that the only other place where they would uh, uh congregate not that bodies congregate but you know what i mean wash up uh where, where they have to stop would be paddington or camden so there's not really a lot there um she had a sister called Catherine paintham uh, at the time of her death this was a younger sister she was at st charles's hospital in labrick grove and she was an inpatient suffer inpatient suffering with tuberculosis which is a really 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 uh chance chance of her dying was higher i didn't get to find out much about catherine but unfortunately the police turned up wanting to speak to catherine about maggie's back history but catherine was unable to give any details because she was in hospital and she was not in a good way didn't look like she was going to pull through so all we really know about maggie is kind of her criminal convictions um quite light ones really she seems to be a woman struggling she seems to 
she doesn't seem to have family. She doesn't seem to have a husband, as far as we know. She doesn't seem to have kids. No one seemed to have come to her council-funded funeral, but then again, they may not have known about it. Um, all of her crimes seem to be stealing and prostitution and drunkenness. It it seems to be a cycle that seems to be going on. Um, I mean, the things that she stole wasn't really much, really. Like, she... Uh, she stole some fruit. There you go. She stole some fruit. Uh, it's, they got in there a shop breaking, but that's pretty much you know breaking into a shop. But th- there's a lot of definitions of that which we won't go into. Which is not it's not as clear as it should be. Same as prostitution. It's not as clear as it should be. Or living off the moral earnings of a prostitute is. It's not. That's not as clear as as it should be especially in that kind of era kind of 19 when you look 1940s 1950s 1960s if you happen to be living near a prostitute living in the same house as a prostitute and she's paying the rent or paying part of the rent you're living off her moral earnings so there's a lot of gray area with kind of these criminal records you have to be really careful when it says theft um in here like one of her criminal convictions is outraging public decency it, you know there's no definition in there of what it means we don't know exactly what she was doing um but it seems to be a bit sporadic um first criminal conviction 1935 then nothing until 54 then 56 62 64 and then after that it's basically just a run of drunkenness 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 on a regular basis it seems to be from her mid 40s till her early 50s which is when she died that she was definitely an alcoholic in this area and she spent all of her, all of her time drinking um and uh and surviving on prostitution and what basically whatever handouts she could get uh, so we don't know why she came to london we don't know why she was here we don't know what she was running away from um obviously she met up with robert hartley who was inverted commas the retired seaman um and seemed to have spent most of her time drinking she seems to have he said he, she sunk easily a couple of bottles a day um so pretty much that seems to be a cycle she wakes up hangover starts drinking to get rid of the hangover gets herself absolutely blotto um staggers around has sex with men for money goes to bed sometimes goes to bed in, the, in their kind of houses she seems to have had some regular clients but they're as you can see, Oh, I keep forgetting that you haven't heard next week's episode. Uh, they're all, as the police would describe, of kind of lower class, unsavoury characters. Do you know, she's not a woman who gets dressed up to go out prostitute. And they know that she's a prostitute. Um, she just wears her regular clothes. Sometimes her hair will be unkempt. She doesn't care. As long as they buy her some drink and pay her some money, she's fine with that. Uh, she lived with a guy called john ford who was 63 who was unemployed at manor park road which is in harleston the building's still there today uh we don't know much about him um trying to be careful not to give away stuff for next week because obviously next week's episode is done uh um, and then she moved in with robert hartley same as everyone I i think i think normally a lot of people go oh they've got aliases must be a criminal but as you've seen with uh soho strangler i think almost everyone has aliases of some kind and even you know most of us you know we we prefer to be called by certain names it's it's like when my grand passed away and i was doing all the legal stuff and i'm so i was so used to calling my gran by uh, the name that everyone called her that i'd entirely forgotten it wasn't her name it was just she hated her first name, therefore no one called her. And, you know, so it's not it's not a criminal thing that she was doing. It's just preference, you know. Some people just don't like their names. Some people prefer prefer nicknames or things like that. So, um, yeah, Robert seemed like a bit, a bit of a lost character as well. Robert Hartley um, doesn't seem to have... He, he claimed to be a seaman, but he, he, I've got... I can find no medical record for... Uh, sorry, no military record for him. And I think a lot of his medical record will probably mean that he wouldn't he wouldn't have served uh, in the army or anything. Um, again, he seems to be the same. He's stealing. He's stealing cigarettes. He's stealing boots. He's stealing socks. Uh, he's impersonating military people for money, uh, not to get into military bags, but just kind of you know. Uh, so even when he was young, so what was this? Twenty one. 
uh, he was pretending to be a World War One veteran and uh, trying to get money off people, um, which does beg the question, maybe he was injured in some way in a job. I hadn't actually thought of that while I was writing this, but maybe that was it. Maybe he was missing a leg or something. It doesn't state that in any of the files, but maybe he was injured, therefore he felt he could probably get away with it. Um, as mentioned, he neglected his family on several occasions. Uh, he described as cruelty to tr children. Again, we don't know much about this. We don't know who he was. But wherever he seemed to go, he seemed to get involved in theft and picking up prostitutes. So stealing a roll of lino was one. Stealing lead piping. Uh, during wartime, he was uh, convicted in Tower Bridge of stealing two bottles of milk from a doorstep, uh, of which he served one day in prison. Uh, down in Lambeth, he did. Uh, he was wearing military medals again, claiming to be a seaman, of which he served three months hard labour. And again at Tower Bridge, he, uh, he stole a service respirator and served 12 months hard labour. Obviously, these are quite serious crimes. Uh, senior, serious convictions for such minor crimes. But because this is World War Two, obviously a lot of these minor crimes have been escalated a lot more as a deterrent because, you know... What they don't want is people stealing things that have been rationed. They don't want people stealing things that they shouldn't have that should actually be with uh, military people. We don't know much about his second wife. We know that in 1939 he, he claimed that he was a motor mechanic. We don't have no evidence of that. And he married uh, Jeannie Williams, which uh, is most likely where he gets that his other alias from. Uh, and... Uh, why he spent four years in a an asylum, we don't know. He was certified of of uh, unsound mind, but we don't know why. There wasn't any details in the file about that. So uh, um, I think that was it on there. Discovery of the body. Let's dive into some things. Oh, I've got to be really careful with this. Um, Ralph Spreadbury, that must have been a horrible thing. Plasterer living in Dagenham. Um, if if you are in and around um, uh, Westbourne Grove, and you kind of know this area as well, so um, this when you go to uh, Westbourne Grove uh, and the area where these houses were, there's there's a thing that I can't mention because it's one of the quiz questions that has been built, and in there is a little shed, and on the sign on the shed it says one five four uh kensal road um but it's not They're, they've actually got their address entirely wrong it took me ages to work out what was exactly right so i know the exact location of where this building was 140 kensal road it's that's up kind of nearer that because I've, I've mirrored it with the buildings opposite and there was a block of flats that was just being built and that was where Re ralph spreadbury was in so if you live in the block of flats um that that's um, uh, on I'm not trying to ex explain it without giving away the quiz question. If if uh, if you live in those block of flats opposite, which are kind of circular at the back of um, uh, on uh, Kensal Road, it's likely that Ralph Spreadbury, as mentioned in the episode, was uh, the man who did your plastering for you, because that's why he was there. So uh, he was there um, working in there. He would go into the derelict buildings every so often to have his lunch and sh shit like that. Um, and this was just a regular job. He'd been there about four months. Uh, he turned up at 8am every day. He would kind of go in at around lunchtime and have a sandwich in one of the eight derelict houses. I think just because he, he liked books, he found it kind of interesting. Um, but even though this was a building site, it wasn't secure. It wasn't sealed off. It was just it was just a road. In this area, there's the, the, this area, there was a lot of... Um, old slums that were being demolished and especially across east london and west london uh, south london uh, well north london as well whole of london there you go all of all of london all the slum sites were being demolished and making way for the kind of the new 1960s 1970s kind of high-rise terraces which were being popped up so this was just a standard thing that across london there was a lot a lot being knocked down uh, a lot of work happening um but yeah that must have been a horrible thing like he's walking through the house trying to find books um it was in the back room he he saw what looked like a suitcase and he thought to, you know it was heavy he obviously thought to himself oh well there must be some decent stuff in here <coughs> books are most likely heavy must contain books uh, inside a suitcase they must be dry so uh he must have thought his luck was in and he i've got some crime scene photos of the of the time and when you look at it 
people have clearly just upped and left whether they were for whether it was like a, a forced eviction or something like that but there's a lot of crap left in the room uh there's like old uh cookers are still there and cabinets and things like that so there's a lot of crap there's mattresses in there you know a lot of things have been dumped but a lot of things have been left as well so uh yeah, it must have been quite a shock to open that suitcase which as i mentioned only was three feet long by 18 inches wide opened it up and when you when you look at the picture it's quite it's quite horrible it's uh which is why i've tried to explain it in the episode is she was covered in rags and all that so you couldn't really th- see that anything was there and she was folded up so it's not human shape you wouldn't expect it but just poking out is like a, a fist her, her hands her fingers slightly spread apart and obviously on her ring finger is like a, a black thick plastic ring and um so you can see there and then that this is clearly a human body uh and that must have been horrible uh, first policeman on the site was pc graham rogers of uh, notting hill police station uh, he received a call on the radio he arrived at 140 kensal road when he went in there he saw the body uh, and him and pc potter secured the scene stating the body had been wrapped in a dirty white cloth um i'm not going to go into too much about the the case because we dive into a lot for next week um and i don't want to give away stuff that's too useful no i'm just looking at the autopsy stuff we we do a lot with that next week uh no i'm gonna i'm gonna leave that there just because We, we can dive into more next week but uh this week let's keep it simple keep it simple and then i can go to the coffee shop Oh, I'm tired. Right, let's do the quiz questions. Don't forget, I, I have balled some of them up. So if it did ball them up, you can have it as a freebie. There you go. Question number one. The body of Maggie was disposed of in the shadow of which tower? It was Trellick Tower. If, you've, uh, if you're if you not used to which one it is, uh, but you you know London well, it's a really, really tall, flat uh i think it's like 24 stories high and then it's got uh, it looks like it's got a separate staircase it is a staircase which is kind it looks like it's not attached to it but it is attached to it um it's a fascinating building it's uh i think it was designed by a goldfinger was it not goldfinger not the bond villain but uh, a different one um and it's fascinating it's been kind of council flats for years and now the the posh kids are moving in so the posh kids are like oh, oh this is uh, rather good oh look at it oh, it's, it's designer oh, oh, oh we're gonna have that so you've got you've got posh kids buying up old council flats and it's it's a weird place because it's it's kind of there's a lot of gangs ha- hang around outside and it's uh it can be a bit dangerous by the canal there i've i've had mates who've uh been pushed into the canal by gangs uh sometimes when people are chugging along the canal on that point they've been shot at with uh, air rifles so it's, it, it, it could be it's got a bit of a bad reputation so personally i wouldn't waste uh close to a quarter of a million pounds to buy a flat there but there you go people who like avocados do like it uh question number two 140 kensal road was demolished to make way for what uh meanwhile gardens it's called I've been there many times. It's got a little skater park where all the skaters fail to do any tricks and uh, uh, a little patch of grass that everyone lies on which is covered in dog shit that gets hot during the summer. Uh, question number three. What was Maggie's full name? It was Margaret Farlow Cameron. Question number four. What did those who knew Maggie call her? It was Carol Question number five, that was one of the uh, middle names of the aliases that she, I think it was her last alias, had uh, Carol as the middle name. Question number five, what two brands of wine did Maggie drink? Uh, King Wine and VP. Question number six, what was Robert Hartley's real name? It was Wilfred Ronald Williams. Question number seven, where was Robert born? Salford. Question number eight, where were the two mental hospitals Robert was committed to? You can you can go with towns or names, whatever's good. Uh, Knoll mental, mental Hospital in Winchester and Prestwick Mental Hospital. Question number nine, what bank did Maggie say she was going to? 
It was the Scottish Linen Bank. And question number 10, the, de the demolition site was known as what? Hazelwood Grove. Uh, not to be confused with Hazelwood House, which is a block of flats not too far away from there, but not the same place. I thought I'd put that in in case someone local goes, oh, I think you're fine, I think you're fine. I love when people write me messages going, I think you're fine. It's always funny because they're always wrong. They're, they never say hello. They never say thank you, I enjoy the podcast. They always start with, I think you'll find. And then they they do a little, they tell me where I've gone wrong. But they never they never add proof. They just go, I think you'll find. It's, oh, it's so annoying. Anyway, they're always wrong, hence I never reply to them. If When people are right and they send me genuine stuff that's really useful, I always reply. If they're arseholes, I never reply. Anyway, there we go. That's it. Oh, God, I'm knackered. Right, that's me done. Have yourself a good week, folks. Stay safe and be good. And thank you for listening to the show. Oh, I'm in a big stretch. <sighs> oh, have yourself a good week, folks. Stay safe and be good. Lots of love. Bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.